good morning, everybody. Man, it's so good to be here. Hey, if you're visiting with us today, or maybe you come to Kingsway periodically and you just happen to miss the last three or four weeks, I just want to say thank you for going along with us, um, putting on a white shirt, and joining us with us today. We're not normally weird like this. We won't make you drink any Kool-Aid. You, you, know, you already missed communion. You could have passed that if you wanted to. Um, but seriously, seriously, the reason we're doing this, because we've been studying the book of Revelation. Today's the last Sunday in that study, and uh, really we're just using it as a springboard today. And there's this thing that keeps coming up in Revelation over and over and over again. That is the, the saints in heaven, those who love God, are literally wearing white, surrounding his throne, and singing praises. Now, white in Revelation over and over and over again, if you read the book, it means victory. So the person wearing white is victorious. In fact, Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, it says this. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Now this word here, victorious, is huge because what's going on in Revelation is you've got a whole bunch of people dealing with a whole bunch of junk. And you got people who chose at some point in their lives to follow God, to go all in with God, but now they're facing a lot of stuff and they're tempted to quit on him. And so John writes this message from Jesus. If you have a Bible that's called a red letter Bible, it's got Jesus' letters or words in red. You'll notice this is in red because this is Jesus through John telling these churches, man, just hang on, don't quit, don't give up, and you will be a winner. So this word victory is an interesting word. In Greek, it's the word nikaiou. And nikaiou literally can be translated as victory, victorious. It means to overcome. You may have a Bible translation that says conquerors. It just depends on your translation how they make that word sound. But here's the big question. What exactly, what exactly are we overcoming? And that's really the theme of today is we're all gathered here in white to practice what will happen in heaven to practice it on earth. Here's what we're told just in the book of Revelation alone. Here's seven things. thought that'd be a good number. Seven things that we overcome in the book of Revelation. Number one, Satan. Number two, sin. Number three, death. Number four, and I don't want to hang on this one for a second, temptation to believe lies about God. So part of what happens in the life of every believer, and it's happening in the churches, the seven churches in the book of Revelation, is people get in and just start to say something that sounds really close to right, but it's off. And consequently, the believers are kind of confused. And they start believing that Jesus came in the flesh, but he didn't really raise from the dead. Or he, didn't really, he wasn't really God. He was just a good prophet. He was just a good man. But that's not what the New Testament teaches us. And so God, through John in Revelation, is saying, don't believe the lies. Here's three more. The desire to give up on God. That's happening, and it happens. Some of you are that story. At some point in your life, you came to faith that Jesus, maybe you were 10 or 12 or 15, and you went all in. You were excited. Something happened in you and came alive in you, and then you got hung up in life and some bad choices, and next thing you know, you feel dead. You just don't know, does God still love me? And today's your day. Let me just tell you that. Number six, hypocrisy. This one's huge. There are all kinds of people... Uh, Teaching the believers one thing and practicing another, they're telling lies and, and it's deceptive and it's confusing the body. And then number seven, turning to someone or something other than God for life and hope and pleasure. And this last one, I put it last on purpose, is because this one is in essence what I would call perhaps one of the best definitions for what we call sin. Now, if you're visiting with us, you've been visiting with us, checking things out, this word sin, you've heard it. 
Because you read the newspaper and you watch the news and you, you know, read blogs and sin is almost always used to beat somebody up who disagrees with the Christian lifestyle. So sin becomes the place where too many Christians judge and condemn others. But in the Bible, sin is often used to simply diagnose a problem. You know, the problem for all of us, whether you know it or not, and if, I have, if I'm able today, I hope I can prove this to you. And the sin for all of us is that thing that creates a wall, a barrier between us and God. It's that thing whereby we, or many things sometimes, whereby we have pursued something other than God. And the good news about God is he's unbelievably kind and gentle and faithful. In fact, one of the most common words used to describe God throughout the Bible is the word faithful. In fact, we see it throughout Revelation. He's the faithful and true one, meaning we don't have to believe the lies that the world sells us or that other people sell us. We can actually turn to him and find the truth, and he is faithful over and over and over again. He'll never contradict himself. He is good. He is kind. You can depend on him. But therein lies kind of the problem. Because most of us have turned to our own ways. In fact, my friend Scott Nichols, a pastor of a large church in Colorado, I love the way he said it. He said, you could summarize the entire Bible like this. God is faithful and people forget. That's a good summary. That's a good summary, sadly, of my life. And I would bet if you're visiting today and you're not sure about this Jesus guy... Why are they making me wear white? Let me just say, almost every person in this room that's been their story at some point or another. And even as believers, sometimes it's easy to forget all that God has done and all that God is doing. And because he is faithful and patient and kind and loving and gentle, he just keeps pursuing you. Just stop for a minute and reflect on your own life. As you sit here today, though you may feel a billion miles away from him, Don't you look back and go, gosh, that's really ironic, and that was really ironic, and I remember when this thing happened, and if you start to look at those things not as accidents, but as God's sovereign, provident hand leading and guiding in your life, you start to go, wow, I feel like he's chasing me. What does it mean to forget God? Now, here's what it means, simply this. It means to lose trust in God's intentions and God's provisions. A believer or unbeliever in this room, not sure, convinced, unconvinced, just Just hang on to that for a second. It means to lose trust in God's intentions. And when you lose trust in God's intentions or that God will provide, that God will meet the need, you start to take matters into your own hands. And when you do that, you turn to money or success or a spouse or kids or sports, you name it. And you hope that those things will meet some need that you have, and it keeps coming up empty. But see, when you buy the lie, when that's what you believe in, when that's what you put your hope in, your trust in, your faith in, and it keeps coming back up because you keep thinking, well, maybe this time it was a momentary pleasure, it was a momentary joy, it was a momentary whatever. And so you keep turning back to it, and you keep turning back to it, and you keep turning back to it, and it keeps failing you over and over and over again. It's a built-in process. God is the only one who can meet those needs in you. He's created a system where you're going to worship something and you're going to pursue something and God says, seek me first, pursue me first, come after me first and I'll give you those other things. I'll meet your needs and then those other things that you run after can serve you instead of you serving them. Because let me just tell you, money, success, kids, spouses make great servants and horrible taskmasters. And some of you are feeling that right now. In fact, there's a guy in the Bible, his name is Paul. 
And Paul is the best of the best of the best. In fact, Paul says this, there's nobody better than him. He's the greatest Pharisee you ever met. Nobody kept the rules and the laws better than him. In the Old Testament, there were hundreds and hundreds of do's and don'ts. In fact, if you're visiting today, you're not even sure about Jesus, that's probably all you know about Christians, a bunch of do's and don'ts. Well, Paul, he had the Old Testament to go by, hundreds, hundreds of do's and don'ts. And he said, I did them better than anybody. You would never meet a better, better rule follower than Paul. But he says this, ironically, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 21 and 19, he says this, if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. Now, don't miss what Paul's saying. He's saying, man, if, if being the best of the best of the best could have actually done something, it would have, but it didn't. Because the harder I tried, it failed. And actually, by trying, it condemned me. Now, here's what he's saying. If you go read his argument, what he's trying to get to is this. If I keep the, that law of God and I only do it 90% of the way, the other 10% screams guilty at me. And Paul's point is, if I break even just one, just one law, one time, I stand in judgment of the whole law because the whole point is that God is unbelievably good and perfect and holy. And Paul's like, and if I'm going to be really honest, I don't even do that. Even though I'm better than all of you, Paul's kind of confident in that way. He said, even I know that I fall short over and over and over again. And the reality for most of us is it's not until we get to that place where Paul had to get to that he finally stops trying to convince everybody else how good he is. Finally puts up his hands and yells, I can't do this. I don't have what it takes. It's not working out. That he meets his Savior. Here's what Paul says, Galatians 2, verses 20 and 21. My old self, the old me, the one that keeps trying to with all these rules, has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Now it's Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Jump back with me, if you will. Come back to verse 20. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Every other religion in the world outside of Christianity says do and do more. Try harder. Work harder. Here's these uh, little hoops you have to jump through. Here's these things you got to do. And if you can get all the ducks in a row, if you can do it just right, if your good can outweigh your bad, you're good to go. There's a problem. Everybody who goes on that path, and if you're sitting here in those honest moments that you probably wouldn't even say right now, you would know it. You know it because you look in the mirror and you go, hey, man, but my thoughts betray me and my actions betray me. And everybody knew this. They'd know I don't fully measure up. And Paul says, it's not until I stopped trying to do all those things and then I just stepped into a trusting relationship with Jesus and realized he he loves me. He loves me. The things started to change. See, it's the love of God that changes us. It's not the rules. It's the love of God that transforms us. But that's the thing. See, this whole trusting thing, that's what we call faith as believers, trusting. It's not just a simple, yeah, 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 I believe. It's a I'm going to rest my whole life on it. I'm going to gamble everything on it. I'm going to literally put my life in the hands of God. And when you do that, he's taking you somewhere. Now, I love the way Max Licato said this one time in his book. He said, God loves you too much to leave you where you are. See, we don't want to just come to God with a get out of hell free card. We want to come to God and say, God, here I am. 
Because your intentions and your provisions are better for me than everything that I could come up with. So whatever you have planned for me, God, I'm all in. I'm all in. And I don't have to make matter. I don't have to add up the way I thought I had, it, had to add it up. It doesn't have to make sense the way I think it ought to make sense. I'm just going to take faithful step one, and then I'm going to trust you on faithful step two. And when you do that, that's what we call crucifying the old self. Now, let's get to that for a minute. Let's just answer this question. How do we overcome? I told you victory, victorious, overcomer, conqueror, they're all the same thing. So how do we actually do that? We do it simply, as Paul said in verse 20 of chapter 2, we crucify the old self. And here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. Galatians 3, verse 2. He says, let me ask this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Now, let's just stop there for a minute. Realize this argument that he's trying to get to. You can't do enough good things to be right with God. God didn't wait for you to put together the pieces of your life. I hear this all the time. Man, I really want to come to God. I just don't have it all together yet. No, you don't quit fighting to get it all together. You're never going to get it all together. The guy standing on stage preaching the sermon is still trying to get it all together. My wife would give a hearty amen, except for she's in class with my boys right now. But what I have that some of you don't have is I have that. I've got God in me. See, the way that God intends to transform your life is not just with 10 steps to the better you, three steps to how to make your, improve your marriage. What God intends to change you is from the inside out, the love of God in you, the grace of God over you, through the power of God in you, the Holy Spirit battling with who you are, cutting away the old you and transforming you. God intends to take you, lead you on a journey from point A to wherever it is you are when he returns, and then he'll finish the rest of the work in heaven. And there's a journey there. You don't have to have it all figured out. You can't figure it all out. And it's not until you come to that place that you get where you're trying to be. Because you received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. Is it really that simple? Yeah. Well, anybody who's been a believer for any length of time will tell you no, but yes. It's really that simple. It doesn't mean it's that easy. It's just that simple. God's going to take you places you never thought you could go. And, and I'm going to guess just up front that some of you, that's what terrifies you. You've got this list of questions in your head. You're thinking to yourself, Man, I, I think I believe in God. I really want Jesus. I want to be changed. I don't want to be the same that I've been. But I don't, I don't know. Like, do I really have to believe that all that stuff in the Bible is true? Do I really have to believe all that? Because I really struggle with talking donkeys and people raising from the dead and all those things. And you might even say, I'm not even sure, like, I'm okay with organized religion because, man, they just have an agenda. They just want my money or something. You might be thinking, man, I don't know if I could do this because I don't think I can vote for Donald Trump in the next election. Let's just say he wouldn't be alone in this room. <laughs> but on a serious note, some of you might honestly be saying, I don't know if I can walk away from this thing that I'm putting my hope in. This girlfriend or boyfriend, this alcohol or this drug, this computer screen. And when I'm having a bad day, when life isn't adding up, that's where I go. And you could tell me it's not working out. I know in my heart it's not working out, but I don't know if I can let it go. Some of you in an even more intense way are sitting here right now with your spouse and you're thinking inside, if I take this step of faith, does that mean I'm going to have to confess to this person that I love, this thing that I did that they don't know about that hurt them? I see, all these questions and fears and anxieties about all 
the next step, step five or step 10 or step 20 in the journey that you're going to end up taking with God, all those things can be paralyzing. And what will end up happening is you'll never get to step one. And two things are happening as a result of that. You never get to step one. You never find yourself wearing white in heaven, victorious over this life. And number two, you never end up becoming the you you were intended to become because you'll just keep trying harder and harder and harder and making a bigger mess out of things. But it's not until you get to that place where you actually believe that, that you'll take that first step. It may be possible God changes your political stance. I don't know. It may be possible God leads you down the road to confess some things that you didn't want to confess, but he's led you to that place. It may be possible that that God intends to get rid of your addiction even miraculously today. If not, maybe through some hard work and intentionality. I bet that's probably true. He may even lead you to believe those crazy stories in the Bible that you're not even sure you can believe. The only place you need to get to is, is Jesus Christ? Is he the son of God? Did he really die on the cross? Did he really raise from the dead? Is he really my hope for a savior? All the rest of those things God will build on from that first step. If you could get there, man, don't wait. Don't wait. Because that's what it means to overcome. It's not just to become a better you. It's to become the real you, the new you that God intended for you to be. And Paul says it like this. I love this. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. He says this. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. Realize what Paul is saying here. Love this. You're sitting here today, God knew before the world began, you'd be sitting here on this day. He'd know the exact people that would invite you and ask you to come. He'd know whether or not you'd even put on white, because you're like, I'm not going to be one of those crazy people. He knew. He knew all that. And yet he chose in advance for you to become like his son. And see, this is the thing I want you to hang on to. The like his son part, that's the thing that God's doing in your life. He's on a mission to conform you, not to the better you, but conform you to the new you, the new you that is fashioned after his son. His son, Jesus, who came down here, lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, and then died the death in your place that you were supposed to die, but he took it on himself, and he made you a trade. Look at the rest of what Paul says. I love this. So that his son will be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. Man, do you hear that? All that stuff you're striving for, all that fulfillment and pleasure and trying to be good enough and adding it all up. What we're finding out here from Paul is it happened in Jesus. You get it as a gift. It's called grace. It's called mercy in him. And then having them given them that He gives them his glory. So Jesus makes you the ultimate deal of all time. You give me all the junk. You give me all the bad decisions. You give me all the abuse and the addictions. I'll give you life. I'll take it on me. You take this on you. Sound like a deal? And I know there's still other questions you have. Yeah, but you don't know what I've done, Pastor. You don't know, but he does. That same guy, Paul, who says there was nobody more righteous than him, do you know the other thing he calls himself? The chief of sinners. Because Paul realizes that all he was triumphing in all of his good deeds is a way to hide his evil. He actually killed and persecuted followers of God. And God in his mercy showed Paul love. And Paul, over and over and over again, he says, I don't deserve it. I don't even understand it. Praise be to God that he gave me his mercy, that he gave me his grace. See, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. God's grace is good enough for you today. But grace is like a present. Imagine it's, you know, Christmas time, and 
that beloved family member buys you that special present and it's just for you, that present's only as good as you opening it. That present's only as good as you receiving it and using it. You can leave it wrapped up sitting on the, on the, you know, the couch or whatever. You can put it in some prominent place where you can see it all the time, but it does you no good if you don't finally open it and put it to use, whatever it is. And faith is like that. You can say, yeah, man, I'm so glad, God, that you're willing to forgive me. I'm so glad, God, that you're willing to love me. I'm so glad, God, you're willing to fill me up. And, man, one of these days, I'm going to get there. Sooner or later, you got to get there. This is why Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 26 says this. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You want to get there? Place your faith in him. Is it really that simple? It's that simple. But again, God's goal for you isn't just, yeah, I believe. Guess what? I believe the world is round, unlike certain rappers today. I believe, those of you who are culturally keeping in tune, I believe that the world is actually round. But I'm not really, like, resting my faith in it. There are a lot of people, especially in America today, who believe in God, and maybe even some believe in Jesus. There's a whole different thing to say, yeah, I believe in it, and say, I'm going to literally put my whole life and trust and faith in it and le- follow him wherever he leads me. And let me just tell you where he's going to lead you next when you get to that place. Look at the very, very, very next verse, verse 27. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. What Paul's trying to get to here is, man, we start with that first step of faith, and then we literally take the next step, and the next step is to take off the soiled old us and put on the new white victorious clothes of Christ Jesus. When we go into the waters of baptism, we are crucifying. That's what Paul's saying in Galatians chapter 2. We are crucifying old me, the old ways, the old efforts, the striving to be good enough. We're crucifying the looking good at others. We're now going to literally surrender and go all in with God. Whatever you want, God, whatever you want. I don't even have to agree with it. I don't even have to like it. It's your life. It's your will. It's your ways. And what God does is he says, I'm going to resurrect that person in a new life. Jesus becomes the prototype, the first example for us of a person who died, literally buried in a tomb, raised, comes out of the tomb, and when he does, he has new life. That's why in baptism, God kills who you are and resurrects the new you. You need to think of baptism, the water. Here, we've got one here and over here. Think of this as a watery grave. That's the biblical analogy. The biblical metaphor is dying old you, raising new you. And here at Kingsway, we only practice one form of baptism. Baptism by immersion for that reason. And I know some of you raised Catholic. I've talked to a couple today. or raised Lutheran or Episcopal or Methodist or whatever it is. We, what we're not saying here is people who've been sprinkled as babies or at some other point are not saved. They won't be wearing white in heaven. They'll be wearing some other color as like the, you know, the, the half-ins. That's not how it works. I don't believe that. I believe that my sprinkled brothers and sisters are brothers and sisters in Christ. However, here at Kingsway, we want to be faithful to what God's word teaches. We only practice baptism by immersion. Why immersion? Well, number one, the word baptizo itself, literally, for those of you who love dictionary kinds of definitions, the word baptism is literally the Greek word baptizo, and it's a verb. And it literally, literally means to dip, to immerse, to submerge. In fact, in ancient Greek writings, it's often used of a ship, not a ship that gets splashed by the water of the sea or the ocean, but a ship that gets sunk and is baptized. That's the word that's used. It completely sinks under the water. It got immersed. It means to cleanse by dipping or submerging, to wash, to make clean with water, or to overwhelm. 
The constant biblical example, so the eunuch gets baptized and he goes with Philip and they go down into the water. If Philip wanted to baptize him by sprinkling, all he had to do is go over to the water, go to right to the edge, pick up a handful and splash it on the guy. Jesus goes to John the Baptist and John the Baptist says, what are you doing? You should be baptizing me. And, and Jesus says, you don't understand. I need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. I need to do this. So they are in the water. He goes down under the water. When he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And we see this powerful analogy over and over and over again. To be baptized means to be fully immersed. Why? Because it's a watery grave. Listen to Romans chapter 6 verse 3. Or have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? You go into that water, what you're doing just realizes old you left behind in the water. Don't worry, we got some spiritual chlorine in there. It'll be all right. New you comes out. I don't think I have this on the screen. I messed up. But let me just read you verse 4 of Romans 6. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. Do you hear that? We died and we were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, we now also may live new lives. New life. Dead old you, resurrected new you. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty fantastic to me. So let's answer this question. Who, who should be immersed? Well, I got two quick answers. Let me dig into both of them. Answer one and two, anyone old enough to know they need a savior. And number two, anyone who has not been immersed before. Let me just camp out on both of these. So look, I realize parents, some of you in this room, especially if you grew up in a Catholic or other similar Catholic background, you're like, I got to get my kids in the water or they're going to go to hell. That You're missing the point here. Anybody old enough to choose it should do it. Now, how do I know when my kid is old enough? That's a conversation with you and our kid staff and our student staff are excellent at helping you navigate that. I've met eight-year-olds old enough to get it, and I've met 12-year-olds not. There's no magic number. What I know is this. When you are of the age of knowing that you need a Savior, you can't do it on your own, and Jesus is the answer, you're ready. And there's questions you can ask, like, do you understand what you're doing? Do you understand why you're doing this? What does it mean to be baptized? What is sin? Have you ever sinned before? If you can't remember, let me list 25 of them because I'm a parent. And, okay, anyway, <laughs> you probably shouldn't go there. But anybody who has not been immersed before, look, I realize some of you were sprinkled. And some of you, even as adults, I know some here in this church. Here at Kingsway, we all practice the same form. So a couple things. Number one, let's say you were sprinkled as a baby or as a young, young, young child. Here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you to take your phone, your computer, your tablet, or a card, something today. Sit down, write a letter, make a phone call. Call your mom, your dad, your grandparents, your aunt, your uncle, whoever it is, if they're still alive, and just call them up and say, I just want to say thank you. You created a foundation in my life, and today, today, God built on that foundation. Today, God took me to the next level in this thing that you began in me. Today, I chose to become united with him in baptism by immersion I am not saying you aren't saved. I'm not saying that God doesn't value that. I'm just saying make it your choice, your decision to do it the way Jesus did it. But let's talk about those because I know there are some of you 
who were sprinkled as adults. And it's a struggle. You're like, I love this church. I want to be plugged in. And here's what I would say. Jesus didn't have to be baptized. He didn't need a washing away of his sins. But Jesus says he did it to fulfill all righteousness. And he was immersed as an adult. Now, I'm just going to use Jesus as an example and say, Jesus did it out of faithfulness to God the Father. And I would just encourage you to do it out of faithfulness to God the Father. Not negating anything that's ever happened to you before, but consider it and say, this day is that day, that marker moment I can always look back on and say, no matter what happens next, no matter what Satan tries to throw at me next, no matter what poor choice or decision I make next, I know on that day, January 2016, I became one with Christ. There's no question about it, whatever. And part of it is, because here at Kingsway, we all start at the same, same location. We all start there at immersion and baptism where we go forward of faith in a community together in this world. I just want to encourage you and challenge you to think about that today. 31 people last service. I don't know yet how many. Yeah. Seven of them didn't plan on it. Guess what? We got all the clothes you need. We got hair dryers and towels. We got a whole system set up backstage, and you're going to get to take part. You could do it today. You could do it today. Let me just close with this. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, 36, and then verse 37. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, (laughs) who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. It came from God, for God. Who then, verse 34, will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Verse 37. No. Despite All these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. Yeah, that gets even better. Gets even better, check this out. So the word for victory that was used in Revelation 3.5, Nikeo, it's the same word used here by Paul, except he adds a little word to that word, and it's the Greek word hooper. And you might say in English, it's where we get our word hyper. In other words, what Paul's trying to say is, no, 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 no. In Christ Jesus, for those who've been united with him, for those in this way, we will be wearing white in eternity one day, and hyper victory, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. So no matter what sickness comes your way, hyper victory, overwhelming victory is yours. No matter what temptation or pressure or struggle in your marriage or with your kids or your job, it doesn't matter. In Christ Jesus, none of these things can keep us from the love of God. It may look like it's over. The story's been written. The battle is lost, but it's not because one day all the saints in heaven wearing white, victorious for those who hang on to the finish, And so I'm just asking, if you're ready today to say, Jesus, I need that in my life. 
Here I am, Lord, in you right now. Wash me, unite me, take it all away so that I might stand victorious in heaven. And if that's your story, we want to celebrate with you. And so everybody here who's planned on this being a special day, in just a moment, I'm going to ask everybody to stand. Hang on. And when I do, if this is your day, just come down here, my left, your right. And we've got some people over there. They're going to walk you through the process, get you changed and ready to go. The rest of us are going to sing like it's heaven. We're going to practice heaven on earth. And some of you I know, like especially some of the guys are like, ah, oh, I can't stand singing. I don't know the words. I can't sing in tune. It's fine. You got to get used to it now because it's going to be a long eternity. And if you don't get used to it now, right, it's going to be awesome. So belt it out. Man, last service I sang so many wrong notes and wrong words. I don't even care, all right? The rest of us are going to sing and clap and celebrate what God is doing in this room and in this place. And listen, if you are here and you're like, I didn't plan on this, but God is calling me. It's time while everybody else is coming down, throughout these songs, I don't care. We could be three songs in. If you're moved, you come down. The service could be over. If you're moved, you come down. We've got people ready to talk to you, answer your questions, help you through it. Whatever you're struggling with, my left, your right. Don't walk out of here. Don't walk out of here without being victorious. Let's all stand and we're going to sing.